How's it going, everyone? I'm Joseph Cotto. Joining me tonight is Keith Preston. Keith, how are you? Uh, I'm good. Good to be back on the program. Really glad to have you back on the show. We're going to be discussing something uh, definitely uh, intriguing, the situation going on in the banking world and what it means in a broader context. Now, obviously, Silicon Valley Bank was the uh, the first domino to fall. And that's interesting because Silicon Valley Bank is certainly considered to be one of the most, or was, considered to be one of the most socially desirable banks around. It catered to what could be thought of as a uh, principally trendy lefty uh, clientele uh, out in Silicon Valley. That's not to say that it didn't take deposits or open accounts for others, but it definitely had its customer base and it prided itself on hiring people uh, basically in accordance with identity politics. Uh, and yet Silicon Valley Bank did uh, go under. Uh, it, it's not just like you know, the community bank on the corner uh, of a suburb and uh, on the corner of a street in some suburb of Akron, Ohio. Uh, so Keith, before we get into any of the specifics, what does this situation look like to you from the onset? Like to you from the onset? Well, I think it's just a continuation of something that's been building up over a period of several decades and that our financial system is becoming increasingly unstable. Uh, we've seen this later, this, uh, this recent round of bank failures of course, we know we had the a period of inflation uh, in recent years. We also had the uh, Great Recession back in 2007, 2008. Back in the early 2000s, we had the collapse of a number of major corporations like Enron, WorldCom, and some others. And I think that this points to something that's you know a much larger uh, trend, and that is our um, our society is starting to develop a lot of the characteristics of a, of a third world society. Um, this is the kind of thing that you see in third and fourth world countries. You see uh, a lot of financial and economic instability. You see financial institutions um, uh, going bankrupt or, or falling apart. You know, I have friends who are expatriates from North America and Europe who live in uh, Latin American countries and they say that there a lot of people don't want to use banks because you never know if your money's going to be available. Uh, we're talking about countries like Brazil, Argentina, Peru, uh, some others, um, El Salvador, Mexico, Guatemala. Um, and increasingly the United States, while, while not being as bad as some of those places, um, is, is moving more in that direction. And I think it reflects a general uh, decline in the quality of institutions generally, and of which this is just the latest um, symptom. I mean, we could uh, talk about the failures of the financial system uh, in parallel to the failures of the educational system. I've seen credible data showing that about half of Americans are now, uh, now obtain only a sixth grade level of, of literacy. You know, so we're becoming a, a nation populated by Jethro Bodines. And uh, that's, you know, that's not really a, a positive current uh, that we see. And that this, the failure of financial institutions is really just a, something that's running in parallel um, with the failure of a lot of other institutions. It's, it's really something else because uh, Silicon Valley Bank, before it gets to some of the other stuff that happened, had been around for 39 years. Uh, it was definitely not a new kid on the block, so to speak, and it was very, very established among what one might call the right people, and yet it had this problem. And yet if one's to look at the educational crisis, which you were mentioning, uh, clearly uh, what happened to SVB uh, does relate to that. So it would seem that it's not just uh, uh, about people who are ignorant out in the sticks. It would seem that 
the sort of uh, problems that a lot of uh, our so-called society is going through, it relates to people at the top as well as the bottom and, of course, in the middle. Well, some of it comes down to incentives as well. Um, how many bank bailouts have there been in, in recent years? Mm -hmm. How many corporate bailouts have there been? I mean, if you and I start a bank and we decide, well, if our bank goes under, no problem, the government's going to bail us out. What do we care if it goes under? You know, it's like, uh, you know, you're in a situation like that, it's going to be, uh, you're going to have a lot more incentive to take uh, unnecessary or foolish risks and, and or engage in reckless financial uh, practices. The, uh, and, and uh, some of this, you, you mentioned how this particular bank, the Silicon Valley Bank, was connected with some of these uh, Silicon Valley startups. What One of the things that SVB specialized in was funding startups that have some kind of woke theme, um, you know, some sort of green energy or, you know, some kind of, you know, social, social justice entrepreneurship or something like that. Um, a, a problem with that is that, you know, whatever the intentions behind projects like that, if they don't make money, they're going to fail. Uh, and when you're allocating uh, investment capital for businesses that are not really based on the soundest practice, but it's financial practices, but you're basing it solely on, uh, you know, the, the, what you perceive to be the social value of what they're doing, then you're automatically assuming a higher degree of financial risk. You know, maybe that's okay, but it's uh, but that in a situation like that, it's not surprising where you're going to have a higher rate of business failure or, or bank failure, particularly if you're a bank that specializes in lending to these kinds of firms. Uh, you know, the one the one thing that we've seen in recent uh, decades is a shift in the focus of of bit what's you know, business ethics or whatever you want to call it, like. It used to be that the dominant paradigm in business ethics was the Milton Friedman model. That is, mm -hmm. it's the responsibility of businesses to make money and increase the value of the business for shareholders. Now, a criticism of that viewpoint is that it uh, it encourages cutthroat business practices. You know, if it, if it makes money, it's good economism and all that. That's a valid criticism. But the other viewpoint that's starting to become much more pervasive nowadays is stakeholder ethics, which basically means that in business practices, well, it's supposed to be based not on just what's going to generate uh, income to the business, but stakeholder interests, and that includes, you know, the you know the environmental impact and the and the social impact and community impact, and you know, what are you doing to uh, attack systemic inequalities in your business model and, and all of these kinds of things. Uh, so it's a kind of uh, a kind of corporate. Uh, I won't say it's corporate socialism because it's not socialism, but it's a it's a it's the the idea is to operate businesses on a on an ethical model that's basically socialistic ethics. And the problem with that is that it increases the amount of financial liability and financial risk that's involved. Again, I'm, I'm not making a value judgment about that. Maybe that's okay. But it's going to be the case that if you adopt a model like this, you're going to encounter more financial risk and a higher rate of business and financial failure. That's just the basic law of economics. Absolutely. One very interesting thing is that according to a regulatory filing from December of last year, uh, about 85% of Silicon Valley Bank's deposits were not uh, insured, which is uh, it's it's uh, it's quite astounding when you consider this was not some you know mom and pop 
uh, credit union down the street. This was a very prominent bank that catered to very uh, financially literate people. And of course, it was doing things which brought it a lot of positive press considering the woke uh, capital uh, setup. Uh, what do you think about this situation, Keith? Well, what triggered the failure of the banks we're talking about, uh, Signature and SVB, was a bank run where, you know, mm -hmm. for those who don't understand finance, and I only have a limited understanding of it, but uh, a bank run is when too many people take their money out of the bank at once and the bank is not ever able to pay everybody what they owe them uh, because the bank has been lending out money uh, as venture capital or, or loans to to other um, customers to borrowers uh, uh, the, the common term for that in economics is fractional reserve banking interestingly uh, there are some radical libertarian economists like the late Murray Rothbard who argue that fractional reserve banking is, is actually a fraudulent practice and ought to be illegal as a form of fraud, um, that, which I do think it's interesting because what, from what I've read about how some of these kinds of fractional reserve banking systems work, they do sound a lot like Ponzi schemes, whereas you're basically drawing in money and using it to pay out others, and you hope that you know you keep drawing in money to keep making the payments to make it look like you're really managing people's money now ponzi schemes are different because typically you're claiming you're investing the money when you're not you're really just collecting money from people under fraudulent pretenses and then using it to pay others uh so that they don't get suspicious uh but i i actually i have a friend of mine that her ex-husband went to prison for running a ponzi scheme and and the way that he was doing it sounded a lot like or not not too much unlike what fractional uh, reserve banking actually involves. You know, he claimed to be a currency trader, but he was really just taking money. And then you know he was you know he was paying out money to his investors from new investors, and he always had to have new investors coming in. Plus, along the way, he was buying up you know um, a lot of luxury cars and you know other other things. Um, and that's you know not too far from what some standard financial institutions practices are. Um, so, it, and, and the more, you know, the, the more that that kind of thing becomes pervasive, the more you're going to see failure of financial institutions, you know, from the, from the left end of the spectrum, I've heard people say, well, this is because the banking sector is not regulated closely enough, but that's, that may, I mean, there may be what ways in which regulation or lack of regulation contributes to reckless financial practices. Um, but I, I think that the, what we're seeing is a convergence of things now that, of, that really represent institutional failure on a lot of different levels and like i said not just in the banking system and other institutions as well i mean we, i think we just see in our society a weak a, a decaying or weakening of institutions in, in ways that more and more institutions are failing mm -hmm. and it's worth knowing before i get into something that you brought up which i think is fascinating uh that svb going down that was the largest uh of any bank failure that took place since the uh, financial crisis during 2007 to 2008 uh and it was the second largest in all of american history uh of course the largest was washington mutual uh so svb's collapse was not a uh not a, a minor thing by any standard at washington mutual remember went out in 2008. Uh, so I, I think that I'll just go over here briefly what happened with uh, Silicon Valley Bank. Obviously, it was a bank run. But uh, last year, it started to uh, started to have substantial losses uh, that came about due to their hike in interest rates, which obviously was due to uh, the Federal Reserve trying to clamp down on inflation. And then, of course, the tech industry was 
very uh, anemic uh, in its in its growth, uh, and that made it harder for Silicon Valley Bank to expand its customer base. Uh, and the bank did have uh, its focus on long-term treasury bonds. So that's, uh, I mean, it's a confluence of factors here, each of which is quite intriguing. And uh, it also had unrealized losses that totaled more than $15 billion in securities. Uh, so it's, it's securities which would be held to maturation. So it's really uh, something else here. The uh, Silicon Valley Bank at the beginning of the year was not about to uh, you know, be uh, held to account for $15 billion, but it did have a paper loss of $15 billion. Uh, and obviously uh, in time that, that loss would have to be accounted for if, it were, if things did not turn around. Uh, so it, 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 the bottom line is that this bank for all of its external uh, prestige and for all of its, uh, how, how do I put it this way, for its spirit of resiliency, it was doing very poorly uh, behind the scenes. And it also had issues with risk management and, uh, of course, the instability of having uh, investors in the tech industry being uh, the ones that the bank catered to. Uh, when these people get nervous, uh, they tend to be decisive. And uh, that's what the, uh, that's what precipitated the bank run. Uh, so it's, it's really something else. It was these investors who pulled their money out of the bank once they realized uh, the issues with the bank and the whole thing collapsed. Uh, it was social media in Intriguingly, that was really uh, the driver of this bank run. Uh, so, so this was sort of like a Twitter-driven uh, <laughs> uh, bank collapse, which is quite interesting. Now, Twitter was around during the 2007 to 08 collapse, but it was nothing like it is today. I mean, Twitter got big in basically uh, late 2008 to 2009. Uh, but uh, today, to see uh, social media having this impact on uh on a on a very prominent bank uh a disastrous impact is quite something else keith anything to say about anything that i brought up here yeah well the role of social media is interesting because it's nowadays it's one of the primary if not the primary method of communication like a lot of people they get their news from following their their twitter feed or their facebook feed or something like that uh, you know, more so than, say, uh, cable news channels or, or network news and those kinds of things. Um, so when information travels on social media, it tends to travel very fast. It goes viral. And it's interesting how something like uh, something that goes viral on social media can trigger something like a bank run. Uh, it, it shows the power of, of social media in many ways. You know, the way, uh, I mean, social media is something that could really generate a serious panic. You know, if, uh, uh, I mean, if someone could I mean, imagine if, say, War of the Worlds uh, happened today, for those who don't know what that is, that, that was a uh, radio program that Orson Welles had back in the 1930s. And one time, uh, just sort of as a gag, uh, he went on the air and announced an invasion from Mars. And people actually thought this was happening. I mean, people thought that you know space aliens were invading uh, uh, the Earth, <laughs> and and you had you know a lot of people went, went into a panic over this. Um, and it, I was and I thought, well, I wonder what would happen if if something like that happened today. And you could you know imagine uh, you know a deep fake videos of space aliens landing and you know were uh, to go uh, go viral on say Twitter or Facebook or one of these social media systems or all of them. Uh, you could really cause some social upheaval, uh, but it doesn't have to be something that far-fetched. I mean, it could it could be something like uh, concerns over uh, impending financial 
uh, doom. I mean, I mean, that's one of the things that triggered the Great Depression in the 1920s was you had a bank run. Uh, it was basically a panic um, that generated a bank run and you had the failure of a lot of financial institutions. Um, and it triggered uh, probably one of the biggest depressions in history. Yeah, it's really interesting to see how much public sentiment relates to uh, economic phenomena. Uh, obviously, the economy is just the sum total of what people are doing at any given point in time with regard to money or the exchange of goods. So this is not uh, surprising. Now, I, I will get into the uh, to the human resources angle here of SVB. But Keith, you mentioned that society in America is becoming more third world like. And that relates to, uh, to what's going on with Silicon Valley Bank and obviously other things, too. Uh, what do you think, say, if this were 20, 30 years ago, what do you think would have been done differently to prevent Silicon Valley Bank from collapsing as it did? Is there anything at all? Uh, well, I think there probably would have been a better risk management structure uh, in, in the banks themselves. I mean, I think their internal policies would have been structured in such a way as to make it more likely that they could avoid a situation like this. I think that's one thing. Uh, I, government policy back then, while while often reckless, was not as reckless as you have seen in more recent years uh, in terms of the level of uh, economic fluctuation and things like that. Uh, now, we did have the uh, stagflation and crisis of the, of the late 70s, uh, and that was a big deal. Uh, you know, the value of the dollar I think decreased by about 50% in the space of about six or seven years. Um, and that was that, and then we had, you know, the, in order to come out of that, the federal reserve raised interest rates up to something like 20.5% or something like that. And then, uh, that plunged the economy into a recession. We had uh, a serious, uh, recession in the early eighties. Uh, in fact, the Republicans got slaughtered in the 1982 midterms because of it. Uh, fortunately for President Reagan, uh, the, they were able to lift the economy out of the recession by the 1984 presidential election, and he got reelected in a, in a, by a landslide. Uh, but if but he but that wouldn't have happened if they hadn't have been able to uh, lift the economy out of a recession. You know, in, in my view, using a lot of uh, a combination of su supply side and Keynesian economic policies, but um, the. The, the more the United States has become a, a debtor nation, the larger the public debt has become, the, the more corporate debt there is, the more personal debt there is, the more you have these debt bubbles in the economy, the more you have institutional sectors that aren't performing on a maximal level, the, the less maneuverability policymakers have to actually try to control these kinds of problems. Uh, you know, one obvious thing is, um, monetary policy you know the the uh because there's so much public opposition to raising taxes when the government needs money they just do it all by debt or through printing more money uh and of course the the more indebted you become you know the more extravagant monetary policy becomes the more uh constraints you face because you can't you can't do that forever i mean that that's not you know there are limits on that so you have these various uh, policy tools that become more constrained in terms of the maneuverability and when it comes to um, addressing financial crises. And we're starting to see that, you know, we're starting to see the long-term impact of some of this. Um, you know, also the, uh, you, you have to take corruption in, into account. Uh, you know, we, more and more in our own society, we see open corruption 
like uh, when Nancy Pelosi was the speaker, I mean, she and her husband were basically engaged in open insider trading, you know, which mm-hmm. the kind of thing, you know, a lot of Wall Street execs have gone to jail for. Um, so, uh, you know, you know, and that's what you see in third world countries too. In third world countries, corruption is almost expected. And if you have, you know, powerful people who engage in open corruption, everybody thinks, well, of course they're corrupt. That's just what they do. You know, that's mm-hmm. the advantage of being a powerful person. You get to do a lot of corruption and get away with it. And it's not even questioned. It's just that everybody's like, yeah, what of it? Uh, and um, I, I see more and more of that kind of thing happening in our uh, society nowadays as well. And this is just the latest example. This, uh, you know, these the series of bank failures, um, and it's not the only area that's failing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Now, talking about uh, what was going on at Silicon Valley Bank in terms of the people who ran it, there was an article published in uh, the New York Post on the 11th of March titled, While Silicon Valley Bank Collapsed, Top Executive Pushed Woke Programs. And uh, I'll just read the opening. As a head of risk management at Silicon Valley Bank, spent considerable time spearheading multiple woke LGBTQ plus programs, including a safe space for coming out stories as the firm catapulted toward collapse. Uh, Very interesting, uh, not terribly uh, surprising. Uh, And then skipping down a bit, uh, it was said that in addition to instituting SVB's first safe space catch-up, which encouraged employees to share their coming out, obviously their first sexual orientation stories, and serving on LGBTQ panels across the world, uh, the executive in question also spent time over the last year serving as a director for diversity role models and volunteering as a mentor for migrant leaders. Uh, and just uh, to skip down a bit more, SVB was abruptly shut down uh, Friday by the California Department of Financial Protection Innovation shortly after it disclosed that it had taken a, a $1.8 billion hit from a $21 billion fire sale of its bond holdings. So obviously, uh, <laughs> the, the, the bank uh, did not have its priorities straight. And it's not just this. This is the tip of the iceberg. Uh, but SVB was definitely focused on uh, politics, whereas it should have been focused on uh, risk management, uh, among other things, uh, among many other things, a great many other things. Uh, but at the same time, uh, it's interesting because I remember that when the banks failed in 07 and 08, uh, they were, uh, there was great criticism for the activities of people who ran these institutions. But uh, a lot of the same people who criticized the institutions back then did not criticize uh, the uh, higher ups at SVB who were basically fiddling as Rome burned in the style of Nero. Anything to say about this, Keith? Well, some of this is actually similar to what happened in 2007 and 2008. One of the things that led to that problem uh, back then, back in the late 2000s, was that, the, the, the big issue was the housing market and the, you had this bubble in the housing market uh, that was rooted in large part in the fact that mortgage companies and, and other financial institutions were loaning money to people who were not a good risk for, um, for as borrowers. Uh, you know, that people were being uh, given money to buy houses with that uh, had no credit history or had bad credit history or you know, were otherwise likely to be a poor risk in terms of uh, borrowing. And what happened is that you had a lot of people uh, who were simply given uh, money in the, to purchase a house with and, and they weren't able to pay it back. Um, and you had the same thing going on in other sectors of the economy. Back then there were student loan companies that were just giving away $25,000 checks to college students. Uh, you know, Absolutely. basically just, just, you know, basically you just had to, um, 
you know, if you, if you, you could fill out a form and send it in, they, they'd send you a $25,000 check every year. Uh, yeah, and, and credit cards. They were giving away credit cards like candy bars back then. Uh, so you had a, 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 a lot of extravagance as far as credit. Um, and and, it, and it, you know, it, it came to a heel eventually. Uh, and what, what we're seeing now seems to be something of a repeat of that. It, it, it seems to be that, uh, you know, it, and, it, and some of it is rooted in some of the same um, concerns because one of the criticisms of the uh, housing market collapse is that they, they were loaning money to people who weren't qualified borrowers. Uh, and a lot of that had to do with uh, trying to uh, address systemic inequalities, things like, well, let's make it uh, easier for people of color to buy a house, or let's make it uh, easier for young families to buy a house, or young recent college grads, you know, people that are systemically disadvantaged in various ways. Uh, and, and which sounds nice in theory, but if you're going to loan money to a lot of people and they can't pay it back and the whole financial institution is going to go under as a result because you have a lot of people borrowing and nobody paying, uh, that that's a problem. Um, and we saw we see this in a, happening in a somewhat similar way with SVB. You know, we, we see as you were as you just described, you, you had a bank that's operating like it's some sort of social justice activist organization. Uh, and, and and those kinds of organizations, by the way, are notorious for being poorly managed. Uh, you know, activist-oriented nonprofits and and organizations like that are notoriously poorly managed. Uh, if you've ever been on the inside of one of those, it's unbelievable how inefficient they often are. Uh, and the reason why is that a lot of people there care less about managing the organization. They're there for whatever cause they're committed to, or uh, and and finance and and business management is just sort of a secondary issue they'd rather not bother with. Um, and and that seems like it sounds like a lot of what was going on at, uh, at SVB was very similar to this as well. You had unqualified people managing the organization that weren't focused on what has to be the. The, the core task of any kind of organization, any kind of organization has to meet its bottom line. It has to meet its overhead. It doesn't matter what kind of organization it is. It could be church. Uh, it can be the, a Cub Scout unit. Uh, you know, it would be a little league team. You, you have to meet your overhead. Otherwise, you're not going to survive. Uh, so that's the first rule of any kind of organization. Uh, and it sounds like a lot of the people involved in SVB weren't really conscious of that as a, as a priority issue. Uh, you know, as you were saying, you had people that were, you know, while the bank is going under their their creating these safe spaces for coming out stories or whatever. You know, I mean, that's that's not how you run a successful business. I mean, no, no successful enterprise, no matter what the beliefs or values of its uh, of, of its leaders or principles are, no, no successful organization is run like that. I agree entirely. Oh, by the way, Keith, I did not give I, I, I was so uh, ready to get into the subject matter here tonight because there's so much of it. and It's so fascinating and so complex that I did not. Uh, I introduced you, but I didn't say that you are an anarchist uh, professor uh, and you have a quite prominent presence online. Would you mind telling people where to find your stuff? Um, if you want to if you don't know who I am, um, you can go to a website called Attack system.com attack the system.com just like it sounds no dashes or underscores just attack the system phrase.com uh, and you can there you can find links to essays and books and all those kinds of things that I've written as well as a lot of stuff by other people 
Got it. And now before we get into the next big bank failure in the U.S., uh, Signature, something smaller has to be brought up because it is the uh, prelude to Signature going under. Uh, there is uh, something called Silvergate Bank in La Jolla, in, in San Diego, California, the you know, same state as obviously Silicon Valley Bank. And it is a, or it still technically is, but effectively it was a bank that catered to uh, folks who are uh, quite into the cryptocurrency craze. And the bank did have an IPO, initial public offering. Uh, and late last year in November, people became concerned about the health of the bank due to the collapse of uh, cryptocurrency and, of course, the uh, immolation of FTX. And then uh, Silvergate uh, this month announced that it uh, was going to uh, basically wind itself down and then uh, liquidate itself. So fascinating. It was not taken over by the state uh, and then the FDIC, as was the case with uh, Silicon Valley Bank and Signature, which I'm about to get into. But uh, Silvergate definitely was something that made people very nervous about crypto and banking. And that brings us to the story of Signature Bank. Signature Bank was founded in 2001. It is a public company, or you know, I guess maybe it was would be a better way of describing it. Uh, a very prominent bank. It's a commercial bank, full service, uh, in Manhattan, and it had uh, offices in other states too. Uh, it was, I believe, Connecticut, California, of course, Nevada, North Carolina, uh, and uh, it focused on uh, commercial real estate, the private equity sector, uh, it serviced mortgages, and it engaged in venture banking. Uh, so it was definitely, uh, it put the commercial in commercial bank, I'll put it that way. And it decided to cater to people who are intrigued by cryptocurrency. Uh, now, the, uh, the the folks in New York, the bank regulators in New York, shut Signature Bank down on the 12th of March. That was only two days following uh, Silicon Valley banks going under. Uh, and it was uh, not terribly long. Uh, it, it, it was not terribly long after Silvergate Bank. It was within the same week. Uh, so uh, the, 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 the fear about Silvergate Bank's health definitely related to fears about Signature Bank's health. And there was a run on the bank by people you know, who had their holdings there. And then the state of New York closed Signature down. Uh, which is really something because I had heard of Signature Bank, even though I'm not in New York. Uh, it is quite well well known, uh, and to see it go under was quite what well, was something else. It was not on the level of Silicon Valley Bank, but it was absolutely a heavy hitter. It's not, you know, once again, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, suburban Akron uh, state chartered credit union. Uh, so it, it's it, this is something different. Wokeness did not kill Signature Bank. This it had to do with uh, the crypto uh, field. Uh, and uh, I mean, at the end of the day, though, both banks met a, an untimely ending. Keith, anything to say about the situation with Signature Bank or Silvergate? Anything you want to bring up here? Well, because cryptocurrency played a role in this, um, I, I, one thing that I think is interesting about cryptocurrency is the way that it is so overly inflated in terms of its you know, supposed value. I, I don't mean just its financial value, but I mean just in terms of its supposed social or political value. I remember, I know when for cryptocurrency first became a thing, I knew a lot of people that were really gung-ho on cryptocurrency. Um, you know, I mean, people who practically devoted their lives to it uh, as a cause. And I, I could never understand what the purpose was. I mean, to me, it was just like, you know, trading gambling chips on the internet or something, you know, but, uh, you know, I knew people who thought this was going to be the basis of a new civilization. I, somebody actually told me that, by the way. I'm not. I'm not exaggerating. Uh, 
a guy a guy I knew who was a crypto entrepreneur said, this is going to be the basis of a new civilization. I'm like, well, go, good luck with your civilization. But uh, um, but I, I, to me, it just seemed like I mean, I'm, I mean, it's just another form of exchange. I mean, there's all kinds of things you can use as a medium of exchange if enough people agree to it. You know, we could use, you know, football trading cards or something as, as a medium of exchange or, you know, old, you know, old compact discs or something. Um, but you had I knew people who had this idea they were going to subvert the state with cryptocurrency. I mean, a lot of these people were libertarians and, and anarcho capitalists and people like that. And they had this idea they were going to somehow subvert the state by getting around the state's monetary system and central banking with cryptocurrency. And I used to ask them, I said, if they want, the state can simply come to your house and confiscate your computers and put you in jail if they think your financial activities are too much of a threat. I don't see anything subversive about this. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah, and, and they would point out things like, wow, well, we, we know of people in North Korea who are using cryptocurrency. Yeah, probably high ups in the party apparatus are doing that. That wouldn't surprise me. But uh, oh, and then, and then I think the nation of El Salvador actually adopted yeah. Bitcoin as its national currency mm -hmm. or something, which, you know, whatever. I mean, it's their country. They can do what they want. But uh, but the, I, I've seen very few things that were more overrated than cryptocurrency. Uh, you know, the way that so many people simply went crazy for it. I knew a lot of people who went seriously under financially because they overinvested in, in mm -hmm. cryptocurrency. Mm -hmm. then, then the market for that crashed about, I guess, about five or six years ago. Uh, I know I know people who've been seriously ripped off in, in crypto investment scams. Uh, so, yeah, it just seems to be a really overhyped, overrated uh, product. I mean, it, you know, it, it, I mean, crypto, the whole cryptocurrency scene always reminded me of one of those late night infomercials, of, you know, where you're, you're, you know, they're selling you some product where, you can lose weight without diet or exercise or whatever, or, you know, it, you can perform sexually as an 80 year old man, like you did when you were 25 or something, you know, it, it's, uh, you know, things that are just unrealistic and unworkable. Uh, so it, it's not surprising to me at all that something that was involved in cryptocurrency uh, re resulted in a financial disaster. It's a cryptocurrency has actually produced a lot of financial disasters. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it has. It's been something else. Uh, some people still swear by it, but it absolutely has created a lot of problems, to say the least. And signature catering to people in the crypto field was uh, definitely going to be an issue. It's worth noting that uh, the Department of Justice was investigating uh, signature for uh, not taking a close, a close enough look at uh the activities of its clients, uh, and therefore possibly uh, facilitating money laundering. Uh, nobody's been charged with that, but that's just uh, it was it was became known that this investigation was taking place. So it's it's something else. It really is something. And uh, ten billion dollars went out of uh, signature by uh, clients who were nervous that you know the bank would go under, and of course it did, ironically because of what they were doing. So it's uh, it's really something else. What happened? with Signature Bank. Uh, Keith, what does this tell you about the future of cryptocurrency in banking? Well, cryptocurrency will probably continue as uh, just another medium of exchange, uh, but it, there's nothing special about it. Uh, you know, and, and like any other kind of uh, financial endeavor it, it, or entrepreneurial endeavor, it has its risk and, and liabilities and downside as well as any positives associated with it. Uh, I, I think that you know, oh, cryptocurrency was something that was so overhyped. I think the the value of it's probably going to be brought down just by 
uh, just by these examples, uh, you know, where, where people are going to realize it's not all it's cracked up to be. But uh, so, yeah, it'll it'll uh, it'll just end up being something else like the, you know, like, a, I don't know, like the Liberty Dollar. That was some big thing that uh, was around about now 20 years ago. Oh, yeah. So you, you had these libertarian people trying to start their own currency. Um, and, you know, stuff like that can can exist, but it, it's not any kind of magic formula that's going to you know, transform the economy. It's not going to be a get get rich quick scheme or anything like that. And uh, I, I find it interesting that uh, the situation with Signature Bank, it was not crushed by politics. That, that, that can't be said strongly enough. It was just crushed by market forces, essentially, uh, which is something, you know, I mean, SVB was crushed by market forces as well, but it was certainly exacerbated the situation by uh, unnecessary political ramblings. Uh, but Signature didn't go down that road, and yet it still had its uh, untimely demise. So it's really something else to see how these two banks, uh, big banks, as a matter of fact, Signature was the third largest bank failure in American history. SVB obviously was second, and then Washington Mutual was first. Uh, so it's, it's, it's something to see how these banks went under. You can say fundamentally for the same reason, uh, market forces, people taking the money out. But uh, what uh, precipitated uh, the bank run uh, was different in each case, very different. Yeah, well, the fundamental principle of economics is the importance of consumer confidence. And that applies to bank consumers as well as anybody else. And when the bank's customers lose lose confidence in the bank, the bank is, is uh, on its way down. And that's exactly what happened in each of these cases. Um, and I think that just poor management was the real issue. I mean, it was, it was the real culprit. That's what caused the loss of consumer confidence. I mean, there are other factors involved, too, like rising interest rates and inflation and you know, other things that are other economic problems that exist right now. But just you know, these, these banks were just terribly managed. That they were. And then, of course, looking overseas, there is the uh, collapse of Credit Suisse, uh, which is being taken over by uh, UBS. Uh, now, Credit this arguably is, is much more important than anything mentioned in the U.S. because Credit Suisse is an institution. It's been around since 1856. Uh, and uh, it, it's, its troubles are absolutely breathtaking. Uh, anything to say about them, Keith, before we get into the situation? Well, I don't know a lot about that particular case itself, although it is, it does sound like something unusual to, to hear about a Swiss bank failing uh, because you know, the Swiss for uh, quite some time have had this reputation for having a, the, uh, one of the world's best banking systems. Uh, and they're certainly a, mm -hmm. and a center of international you know, financial, uh, they're certainly an international financial center. Although I think a lot of their problems have to do with the fact that they're becoming increasingly integrated into the wider EU system, uh -huh. so that a, a lot of the a lot of the problems that you see in the EU generally are now the Swiss are experiencing because they're becoming more integrated with the EU and more uh, and more dependent on EU institutions. You know, and of course the EU includes all kinds of things. It includes Greece and and, and other countries that are basically just abject failures. So uh, in terms of their economic system. Uh, so I think that a lot of that probably has contributed to the problems the Swiss face, and that is they're, you know, they're, the the economic forces that they're becoming impacted by and integrated with are, are harming them. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it is something to see how the lack of national sovereignty is uh, dragging uh, certain companies down, even though these companies traditionally were not fans of national sovereignty because it meant that they were more isolated from other markets. But uh, Credit Suisse definitely is, 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 is an interesting case uh, for the reasons you mentioned, among many others. Uh, and what precipitated UBS uh, saying it would buy Credit Suisse was the downfall of Silicon Valley Bank and then Signature Bank. It triggered panic. Uh, across the Atlantic and across much of the European continent. And, and so it created this uh, state of affairs. Uh, it's fascinating. What do you think will happen going forward with the banking industry, at least in the US, Keith? Do you think this is going to cause any big changes? Do you think it's gonna be business as usual? What do you expect to see take place? Uh, well, I don't really see any political reforms happening that would address this or you know, be inclined to prevent this from happening in the future. In fact, probably just the opposite. We'll probably see more and more of this over time. I, I, you know, I mentioned earlier that you know, we're in many ways, the United States is becoming more like a Latin American country mm -hmm. with a lot of the same kinds of institutional instability and institutional failure. And, um, and this is one of the issues. You know, financial problems are a big part of that. Uh, and I think that uh, we're probably going to see a lot more of this in the future, not less. Uh, we're going to see more and more people mm -hmm. lose confidence in the financial system. We're going to see more bank runs, not less. Uh, you know, we're going to see more people who are hesitant to use banks at all. Um, and uh, because that that's what they do in, in, in some of these other countries. So that's the direction we're headed in. I mean, I think we're becoming more like a, a Latin American country in many ways. I mean, our our social class system is becoming more like what you find in a Latin American country. Uh, you know, our financial system, the level of political corruption, the kind of clownish, oafish political leaders you see in a lot of Latin American countries are becoming more commonplace here. Absolutely. Yeah, it is fair to say that America is becoming much more of a low trust society to the extent you can say it is any kind of serious society. I'd argue it's a collection of societies which are often in competition with each other. They just happen to exist within the same geopolitical boundaries. Uh, now, uh, Keith, where do you see that going in terms of uh, financial stability? Uh, presuming that you think I'm correct in my point of view, uh, where do you see this uh, this going? What do you what impact think will happen upon the economy? Well, you mean what effect the uh, cultural fragmentation is going to have on the economy? Yes, exactly. Well, I think it gets back to what you were saying about a low trust society. Um, societies that tend to have the most stable and prosperous economies tend to be high trust societies. Uh, low trust societies mm -hmm. typically have a lot of economic instability. You have huge disparities between social classes. Uh, you have a lot of cultural and social and political factions that can't stand each other. Um, and when you have uh, a low trust society, you, you can't have much in the way of stability because um, no one is going to, uh, more and more people are not going to be nearly as forward thinking. Like you're going to have uh, more and more people with a, a, a high time preference, for example, or more and more people that are interested in instant gratification rather than delayed gratification. Like one thing that's really interesting is to study the economics of organized crime to see how organized crime groups work, you know, in terms of how they actually do business with each other and with the, among themselves and things like that. Because organized crime is ultimately business, it's just illegal business. So, and, and of course, these are very low trust societies when you're dealing with organized crime, you know, it's like every man for himself. And, you know, if you're, you're a competitors in the way you just kill them. And, and so uh, definitely that's about as low trust as it gets. 
Uh, and what you often see in these kinds of organizations is a great deal of instability. Uh, you, you see a great deal of, uh, of uh, secrecy. You see a great deal of uh, factionalization. You, you, you see tr constant treachery. Uh, it, and it's not an environment where you could ever do long-term planning or be very future-oriented. You know, like, like your typical mafiosa guy is not somebody who's planning a long-term future. You know, he, he knows he's very likely to take a bullet before he reaches old age, you know, and I figures, well, he'll just go out, you know, with a bang, literally. But, uh, mm -hmm. uh, and, and it, it, that's, a, that's a hallmark of low-trust societies. I mean, maybe not, maybe it's not that bad, but, but it's, it's still the kind of society where forward thinking and the kinds of things that typically contribute to economic prosperity are less common just in terms of human behavior. Uh, one example that actually you were discussing recently, I think on Twitter, was uh, the case recently of uh, Lauren Boebert's teenage son oh, yes. having an illegitimate child. And I, I think I don't know the ages of these kids, but I think her son is what sixteen or seventeen. I, I believe think. he was seventeen at the time, and and the girl is you know I I don't know I, they're they're both minors I guess mm -hmm. is the issue. That's what I I heard she was fifteen. I don't know how true that is though. Yeah, well that sounds about right. But uh, it, anyway, and then of course you had all these supposed social conservatives coming out saying, isn't it wonderful that they didn't abort? The, the pregnancy, you know, uh, like this, like this is family values. This is <laughs> family values here, you know. It, it's uh, and uh, but I, I think though that that is indicative of the proletarianization of our own working to middle classes. Like, you know, in in a in a in a stable middle class, there tends to be a high emphasis on uh, being forward thinking, low time preference things of that nature. And for that, that's one of the reasons why in very middle-class oriented societies, things like teen pregnancy are, are highly discouraged uh, because sure. it's an economic liability. It's a Absolutely. major economic liability. I mean, if not for the state, at least for the family and, and certainly for the individuals, parents involved. Um, so that tends to be discouraged for that reason. But you had all of these conservatives saying, well, isn't it great that these kids, you know, these 17 year olds are having a, an illegitimate kid. Um, I mean, which which I think represents the fact that, you know, conservatism, you know, in scare quotes, is now basically the ideology of the working class in the United States. And, you know, it reflects the kind of working class we have. It's like the trailer park family values. Uh, you know, it's like, don't abort, just have a kid when you're 13. You know, why not have a few more? You know, it's, uh, it, it's uh, you know, be fruitful and multiply. Uh, yeah, so... Um, but but that's the kind of thing you see again in low trust societies. It's the kind of thing you see in societies with a very high levels of social stratification. Uh, you know, if you go to countries that are very poor among their lower classes, it's not uncommon. You know, like you'll have you'll find a family that has five daughters, and maybe three of them have already had illegitimate uh -huh. children by the, by the time they're in their twenties. You know, or, you know when they're still in their teens. Uh, it, it, so it's nothing unusual about that. But the problem with that is when there's an emphasis on instant gratification, on um, with a, when there's a high time preference, long term planning, which tends to build long term prosperity, becomes more difficult. Absolutely. And we're seeing that in, in many different aspects of our own society now. Mm -hmm. and, I mean, and if you don't care about economic prosperity, there are some people who would say, well, that's economism. You know, it's like. That's not the highest value, and I know some all right people who believe that. You know, 
cares about the economy. It's culture that matters. You know, okay, maybe. But that is a basic economic principle that you see being played out in society after society. When, the, when you have a high level of economic prosperity, you tend to have a society with low time preference, emphasis mm-hmm. on delayed gratification, emphasis on long term planning, things like that. Absolutely, 100%. I was going to say that a lot of people don't recognize that economics drive the culture. Of course, culture can impact economics, but economics tend to drive the culture more than the other way around. Uh, and it's uh, it's really something else. Yeah, well, you know, there's always been this question of why do Northern Hemisphere countries tend to be wealthier than Southern Hemisphere countries? And why did the countries of Western Europe, why were they the first to industrialize and why did they become so internationally powerful? And, you know, I, I tend to think that probably the single most important economic determinant is sheer geography, you know, the, the topography, climate, you know, just the kind of land you're on and, and where it's located. Uh, for instance, uh, seafaring people, that is people that are located near waterways, tend to be more economically prosperous than landlocked people because waterways prov- have traditionally provided the means of tra- developing trade routes and wealth accumulation and things like that. You know, of course, the, it's known that the earliest civilizations developed in the Levantine region, what they used to call the Fertile Crescent, because at the time they had the most arable land as mm-hmm. far as you know, anything humans had come across. And I suspect American... Uh, economic prosperity is rooted in the fact that compared to many parts of the world, America has traditionally had very arable land as well. And then when you had the English settlers coming to America, they they had this entrepreneurial, you know, the merchant culture that was combined with access to this arable land and that built economic prosperity. So you had a cult- combination of culture on one hand, economic resources on the other that cre- created economic prosperity. Uh, in the United States, and same with Britain. I mean, Britain being an island, it has to be a seafaring country and develop extensive trade routes. Same with Japan, uh, exact same situation. Singapore, similar situation. Um, you know, whereas countries that are more landlocked, um, they tend to be not as well off economically unless they have, you know, really valuable natural resources. Um, you know, I mean, Saudi Arabia, if it, they didn't have petroleum, they'd be nothing. I mean, they still be in prehistoric times. Uh, the uh, yeah, you know, and also I think it's interesting that cold countries tend to be more economically prosperous than warm countries. And I think the reason for that is in a cold climate, you have to be more forward thinking. You have to think, well, I can only farm X numbers of months out of the year, or I have to have so many provisions put away from the winter, you know, or else I'm going to freeze to death or I'm going to starve to death. You know, whereas if you can live outside 24 seven year round, it doesn't matter. You know, who cares about building a house? You know, it's uh you know, I remember having a discussion with a guy one time, an, an Afrocentrist, you know, and he was talking about things that uh, a lot of, uh, you know, about a- aspects of African history that are ignored. It's like, you know, people say, well, people always depicted Africa as being backward, but actually we had this and this. And I'm like, yeah, you did have a lot of interesting things. But at the same time, you know, you, you never really had developed a two-story building, you know, even as late as the 19th century. And they're like, well, we didn't need one. We just lived outside. You know, I'm like, well, I mean, that's you've got a point because if you, you don't, if you can live outside 24-7, who cares? You know, why bother building building shelters? Uh, so, but but I think though that in a cold climate, though in a cold climate, it does develop the kind of the way of thinking that's likely to lead to a greater level of economic prosperity. Um, you know, I had a conversation once with a, an academic from India. And he argued that one reason why the West became more prosperous than India initially was because he thought that the, the West had this tradition of 
of rationality and thought to a greater degree than, than, than what you found in, in India, because, you know, in, Indi in, a, in the West, you have the Greek tradition, you know, the Socratic tradition, all that, whereas in India, it's more in it towards mysticism and spirituality and meditation. And also the Indian caste system was so stifling, nobody's ever motivated to do anything because you, if you're born into a particular caste, you're expected to stay there your, your entire life. So if your father is a shoemaker, you're expected to be a shoemaker. So nobody ever has any incentive to engage in any kind of self-improvement. That is fascinating and not at all uh, unsurprising to me. Yeah, I think that America definitely is stifling. There's a lack of innovation here and it is backsliding. And eventually it's going to become a second and then a third world country. But I would imagine by the time it could generally be described as a third world, it would never be third world in totality. Uh, there'll be some parts of it are always very well to do. Uh, it will probably be controlled by many different uh, entities, whichever players are uh, in the global power uh, arena at the time. So this is kind of like 100 years down the line, maybe less, but I, I, I do think that's where things are headed. It does seem like America's in its uh, late uh, Roman Republican phase. Uh, it's it's uh, it's actually, no, sorry, late uh, Roman Imperial phase. Uh, it's, it's, it's really interesting. Of course, people could draw parallels to the late Roman Republic as well, but America is a republic that became an empire, much like Rome, and eventually uh, it had so much influence across the world that uh, the world came to it, and the people who uh, made uh, the Roman Republic come empire such a massive presence uh, more or less lost confidence in themselves. I definitely see that happening now with America. Well, I think there are regions of the United States that if they weren't integrated into the wider North American economy and did not receive massive amounts of aid from the federal government, that they would be the equivalent of third world or even oh, fourth countries in some instances. I think, I think Arkansas, some of the other parts of the Deep South, West Virginia, there's a number of places that that's, I think would, that's what they would be. I mean, they would be like the Central American countries, you know, if, um, it, it would, if they were left to their own devices. And then there are there are other parts of the country that I think are more like you know, Western Europe or would be if they were, you know, like particularly the large cities, um, you know, in, in the north. Um, and the, well, that's another thing that's interesting is we're seeing this huge divide taking place between the cities and the countryside now. Uh, you see the, the cultural divide between the, the, the urban areas and the, and the rural areas. You know, it's that, that's a bigger divide than than the actual states. I mean, you, mm -hmm. people talk about the red in Absolutely. states, but it but when you break it down to the county or even precinct level, that's an even bigger uh, divide. And um, so we're increasingly it's like we're becoming this country of these wealthy clusters of city states with you know these hinterland areas of increasingly impoverished you know almost third or fourth world people. It's fascinating. Yeah, and of course, much the same is happening in Europe. It's not just an American thing. Same thing mm -hmm. happening in Canada, too. Uh, it, it's really uh, fascinating in, in, a, in a grotesque way. But uh, that is what's going on. As we do begin to very unfortunately wind things down, Keith, uh, what do you think? Do you think that the business world will learn anything from what happened to Signature Bank, uh, Silvergate, to a lesser extent, and of course, SVB? Or do you expect everything to be business, no matter how poorly it might be executed as usual? Well, for there to be changes in business practices, there has to be not only incentives, but there have to be individuals who are capable of making changes. And it seems like that a whole new paradigm has developed in the business world, as well as in other institutions as well. For instance, all of this woke stuff, I mean, that's becoming, you know, the, 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 the public religion, you know, that's yeah, becoming like 
like Catholicism in the Middle Ages or something, uh, you know, in the sense that, you know, you, 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 you know, no matter what problems your feudal manor has, you don't just turn your back on the church, uh, you know, if you want to remain alive. Um, the uh, and, and I think that that's true with a lot of our own institutions today. For instance, there's this big debate that takes place in some conservative circles or, you know, dissident right circles about the degree to which woke people and institutions actually believe in their ideology. You know, there are some people who say, well, they're all true believers. You know, they really take this seriously. There are others for whom it's just opportunism and virtue signaling and ladder climbing. And, and I think it's both. I think it's, you know, you have people in both, both of those kinds of categories. But there really are a lot of people in the institutional sectors now, including the corporate world and financial world, uh, you know, not just in education and all that, who really take this woke ideology seriously. And they really do look at it as, you know, their social mission to, you know, promote woke values uh, with economic values being secondary. Uh, you know, it's just like in a, in a, in a, you might have a company that's run by people who are very religious, uh, like say Hobby Lobby, you know, Hobby Lobby is a, a, a business that's run by very religious people and they've had some legal issues because they don't want to provide birth control for their employees and that kind of stuff. So the, clearly they're an institution where, they, yeah, they care about making money, but they care about their religious values too. And that's true of woke institutions. You know, they, they probably, I mean, I, I assume woke banks and woke business corporations want to make money, but their, their woke values really are part of their worldview and part of their ideology and part of their mission statement and part of their corporate policy system. Uh, and it drives the way they think, you know, they, you know, people, people act according to the way they think. And, and they, if they really believe in all these ideas, then it's going to influence the way they act. It's going to influence institutional policy. What do you think the future of corporate wokeness is, Keith? Where do you do you think it'll just keep growing in power until it's basically uh, something like uh, a force that would have been seen during the Spanish Inquisition of, of religiosity, or do you think that it will uh, subside at some point? Where do you think this is going? Because it is very scary. yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, it's I, I, it seems to me that woke really is a public religion. I mean, it is like Catholicism and, and some past cultures or like Islam and, and you know, some Middle Eastern countries or whatever. Um, and as to how extreme it's going to get, I, I don't really know. Um, I think one thing that probably constrains that is the fact that we live in such a divided society. Uh, you know, if we had a society where everyone was woke, it would probably be even, you know, a lot more extreme. It would be like woke Saudi Arabia or something. Um, so, um, you know, it, it's it's possible for institutions to exist and still be very ideologically rigid, you know, but they usually tend not to be the most functional institutions. I mean, you see, you saw that in the former communist regimes where, you know, for, for decades, those institutions managed to exist, even though they were driven by this cultic ideology, you know, they could still have factories and farms and, you know, things like that uh, until it all came, fell under. Although I think that was due to economic inefficiency more than ideology. But um, yeah, I mean, I could very easily see uh, well, I think I think this corresponds to what the third worldization of the United States, because one of the characteristics of, of poor countries and low trust societies is that they tend to be very nepotistic. 
and the nepotism overlaps with tribal and clan and ethnic and religious loyalties and that kind of stuff. So the idea is in a company, you don't just hire the best person for the job. You hire the person from your clan or from your tribe or from your family or whatever. Uh, and that's expected. You know, to, to do otherwise is considered improper. And I think it's what we're going to see is an economy in the United States that a business culture that's very similar to what you find still in some third world countries where the business culture isn't just about business. It's also a, overlaps with these wider you know, pre-existing uh, tribal, clannish, ethno, ethnocentric, sectarian, religious, cultural paradigms, um, which, you know, I suppose in one, some ways there's an element of cohesion to that. But on the other hand, it, it creates extreme economic inefficiency because it's there's the meritocratic element tends to be severely undermined. And one reason why feudal armies tended to be terrible is because you got your position as a military commander through inheritance, you know, whether you knew anything about fighting yeah. battles or not. Um, you know, one uh, one thing problem that the Bolsheviks ran into after the revolution in 1917 is that they shot all the factory managers as, as capitalist enemies, uh -huh. but then they didn't have anybody left who could actually run factories. Yeah. So they had to uh, import factory managers from the West who actually knew how to uh, manage factories. Uh, Anthony Sutton actually wrote quite a bit about that. That's that's an interesting story. Um, so I, I, I think that that's probably going to become the dominant institutional paradigm in America. It's going to be something where the, the, the institutional structure, including business culture, is subordinated to this woke ideological framework where you know, operational efficiency often takes a backseat to ideological considerations. Definitely a grim outlook on the future, but I do correct one. I think it's a question of degrees how bad it'll be, but I do think that's where things are headed, and it is a damn sorry sight, to say the least. Now, Keith, my last question before we go, I think there will be a big bank failure in Western Europe over the next few months. I think this is basically self-contained now. Uh, your, your communication was breaking up there. Could you repeat the question? Sure. Uh, yeah, I, I asked, uh, do you think there will be any other bank failures in the U.S. or Western Europe over the next few months, or do you think that the crisis is basically self-contained now? Uh, well, I wouldn't venture to guess whether there's going to be any more failures you know, in, in that short a period of time. I, mean, I think there'll certainly be more failures, and there'll probably be even more of them over time uh, as institutional sectors continue to deteriorate. I wouldn't make a prediction as to when and where and how, but We'll see more of this in the future rather than less. I'm pretty, I think that's a pretty safe prediction. Unfortunately, I share it. I mean, I do like a very safe and stable and productive banking system. Any given country needs it in order to uh, have any sort of investor confidence and just peace of mind among its general populace. Uh, so, uh, you know, a, a serious, a solid banking system is a key aspect of any country having a gainful future. Uh, and when you don't have that, uh, very, very bad things happen. People lose confidence in the future, basically. So uh, definitely something worth keeping an eye on. That goes without saying. But uh, Keith, thank you very much for stopping by tonight. It's been an outstanding conversation. Uh, you're welcome. I'll come back anytime. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to it. There's a hell of a lot to discuss. And uh, I have no doubt we'll be chatting again 
very soon. And I do thank everyone for having uh, tuned in tonight, whether you saw it live or whether you're watching it after the fact, which is probably going to be the case, or listening to it as a podcast upload. Thank you very much for your time. I hope you uh, come away from this having learned something or at least having found something to be food for thought. Take it easy, everyone. Stay safe, be well, and cheers. Thank you.